Well, can a believer lose his or her salvation? Can a genuine believer in Jesus Christ, regenerate, converted, believes in Jesus, had a heart and life change, go on to lose his or her faith? I've asked this question in the intro like three or four times now because we're at a point in the book of Hebrews where this question comes to our minds. And one of the reasons the question comes to our minds is because the way that the author of Hebrews warns the people of God in this passage have led many to think, yes, you can lose your salvation. This is kind of a, right now, a part two of at least two parts of a sermon that I was started last week and I'll continue today to try to help you see from the Bible and from this passage here the answer to the question, can you lose your salvation? It's actually a critical question that I think everyone needs to get settled in his or her mind. If you have your Bibles with you, you're welcome to go to Hebrews chapter 3, verses 12 through 14. I'm going to read this out loud. I'm going to put the pertinent verses up on the slides, so you're welcome just to listen along and and to watch on on the slides and see where we are. But here's what I want to do. I'm going to read through 12 through 14. That's the passage we're going to be in, the very short portion today. I'm going to pray, ask God for his wisdom, his help, his guidance on our time, and then uh, we're going to dive in again, a verse at a time, and take a look at the text. So let's let's, let's read and then pray. Take care, brothers lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Let's pray. Lord, this morning we are seeking to hone in on just a few short verses, just three verses this morning. Lord, we know that to to do justice to this, we also need to think a little bit more outside the context of what you intended to share through this apostle in in our reading today. And Father, I I also pray uh, that as we read these things, we will be helped by you to see what it is that you want for us to know. Lord, we don't want to just try to come up with our own theories or contrived interpretations of texts of the Bible. We want for you to tell us what you mean. And so, Lord, we ask for you to do a work this morning and that you would clarify for us this very important topic, that you would provide an answer for us in this very important topic. And, Lord, that we would be encouraged, even as the text here says, exhorted by what's offered to us here. And so be with us this day, Lord. Help us to submit to your word. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Starting with verse 12. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Last week, in order to get our minds straight about the topic that is being brought up by this verse, I asked The critical question, how, if you are a believer, did you get saved? What happened in your life that made you go from unbeliever to believer, non-Christian to Christian, not saved to saved? What was it? The answer that is 
not only critical but clear throughout all Scripture is that the way you and I may go from unbelief to belief, from unsaved to saved, from non-Christian to Christian, is by believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, this is over and over and over and over and over and over, like on repeat in the New Testament. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, that not of yourselves it is the gift of God, not of works so that no one can boast. Jesus was asked, what must we do to be doing the works of God? He answered, this is the work of God to believe in him whom he has sent. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. This is all over. You'd have a hard time flipping pages in the New Testament with your eyes closed, landing on one, and not finding this somewhere on that page because it is so exhaustively showed to us. We are saved by belief. But then I followed up that question with another question. The next question is, why, if you are a believer, why did you believe? What produced the commendable activity of faith? And I sought to show you from Scripture The Bible tells us that we are unconditionally elected. I mean, unconditionally chosen. We are chosen by God, independent of anything in creation, to include our choices, good things inside of us. This means that we cannot look at ourselves as Christians and at the rest of the world and say, we're the worthy ones. We're the one, we are the ones who are smarter. We're more intelligent. We just figured out the code. We don't say that we are wiser. We don't say that we are just better choice makers. There's something more commendable in us. We say, by the grace of God alone. And because your faith is a free gift from God, unconditionally granted to you according to his sovereign good purposes, once received, it cannot be lost. I spent considerable time this last week trying to show you this doctrine from the Bible. We call it perseverance or preservation of the saints. Preservation of the saints. That God will certainly preserve those who are saved to the end. And I've tried to argue, this must be settled for you. If it's not, this is going to be an issue for you every day of your Christian walk. It could be every day of your Christian walk. If every time you are faced with sin and you fall into that sin, you may struggle yet again. Am I, is God going to kick me out? Am I going to be blotted out of the book of life? Am I going to make it? This is going to be a considerable concern for you if this isn't settled. Now, you can go back and check that out. You can ask us. We love talking about these doctrines. We'll never get bored talking about them. If you have questions or thoughts or concerns or challenges, People at this church, I feel confident to say this for all the pastors at this church, for even all the other members of this church, just ask us. We love talking about these things. But there does certainly appear to be some friction between what I just said, you can't lose your salvation, and this verse. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. 
This is the reason I had to lay this groundwork this last week, to show you before we got all the way into the nitty-gritty of this verse what the Bible teaches about it, what we would expect before we even opened Hebrews chapter 3 of how you got saved, how you remain saved. So if this passage is for believers, as I believe that it is, I argued that in previous weeks, and if it is to be taken seriously, as the rest of the Bible it certainly is, and it is a genuine warning to believers, then how does this work? Why does the author warn people to not fall away if they cannot fall away? That's the question. And the one-sentence answer I gave last week, and I seek to build on not only last week, but I'll continue that this week, the answer, one-phrased answer I'll give you, is because warnings like this one are God's ordained means of preserving His saints. This is how God preserves His saints, by genuine warnings. Now, I presented that a little bit this last week. I didn't, I didn't get into the nitty-gritty of that, but I showed you the pieces we had to have on the table in order to talk about it. And I know that I left some questions unanswered. I even closed the sermon with that acknowledgement. I've left a few things unanswered, things that I intend to deal with today. Here's a few of the questions that some version of these are floating around out there. I'd, I'd be quite certain. Here, here's some of those questions we're going to deal with. Number one, is this really what this author had in mind? Rich, are you interpreting this right? Is this what God intended by the Holy Spirit to communicate through this author, this apostle who writes this down? Hmm. That's the first question. Second question, do warnings like this, if they're for genuine believers, does that rob assurance? Does this mean that we can never really be sure? The third question, how are we to think about people that we have observed in our lives? Profess faith and then leave the faith. How, if, if it's true they can't fall away, certainly, then how are we to think about that? And lastly, what is the antidote to our falling away? Those four things are what we're going we're gonna to deal with this morning. We're going to use this text to talk about them. Number one, first question. Did the author intend to assure his audience that they would not lose their salvation and at the same time warn them to not fall away? I think the answer is yes. And here's why. Without going away from this particular passage, if you jump down just two verses, down to chapter 3, verse 14, just write down the next phrase he talks about this. The author writes, For we have come to share in Christ... If, condition statement, if, for we have come to share in Christ. If you're just, just look at this with me, follow the language with me here. What does it mean to share in Christ? This is the exact same language that can be articulated in some of the translations. Partakers of Christ, participate in Christ. To be called one with Christ. What does that mean? Quite simply, it's to be a believer, to be a Christian, to be in Christ. How, how can this be said to be true of you? What does it take? There's the if. See, the if is coming up. We have come to share in Christ. This is past tense. This, means you, you have, this has happened to you. It can be said of you that you are a believer if, if what? If, if you believe. That's certainly true, isn't it? If you believe. 
If you repent of your sins and turn in faith to Christ, yes, that's how you can say that you are a believer. What does this text say? Look at at the next half of this sentence. For we have come to share in Christ if, indeed, we hold our original confidence firm to the end. You see it? So you have become a believer if you persevere. Do you see that? Perseverance is a necessary part of salvation. Simply put, if you don't persevere, you're not a believer. It could never be said to be true of you that you are one who has shared in Christ. And not only that, you never were. So without leaving this chapter, without leaving this exact passage, this little section, this paragraph, we can see that the author has in mind that Christians will certainly persevere. Certainly. Because if you have come to share in Christ, you will persevere. And if you persevere, it shows, it proves, it demonstrates, it displays that you have come to share in Christ. And it's more than just here. The author doesn't just drop this here as a kind of fuzzy question for us and then move on. We have this elsewhere also. We've been working through the book of Hebrews for months now, got our way to chapter 3, verse 14. When we were back in chapter 3, verse 6, I kind of just went over it quickly. If you were to go back and listen to that sermon, or if you were here to hear it, you might have gone, oh, that's interesting. You just kind of went over that. That's because I intended to come back to it when we got here. I'm going to put that verse up for you and show you. It says the same kind of thing. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house if, if indeed what? Same kind of condition statement. If indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. So how can it be said that we are the house of God, we are right now the household of God, if we hold fast our confidence? You are past tense and present tense if the future is that you persevere. There are two more passages in the book of Hebrews that are really profound. The ones that lead people to think, see, you can lose your salvation. They're in Hebrews 6 and they're in Hebrews 10. There's another one in Hebrews 2, but those are the other two big ones, Hebrews 6 and Hebrews 10. And in both of those passages, which we will cover in the months that we get to, I promise you we'll go slow through those passages, if those passages are the ones that cause the stumbling over this idea, it is significant then that in both of those, Hebrews 6 and Hebrews 10, the author includes certain assurances for our sake. I want to show you what I mean. Hebrews chapter 6 is probably, I, I think, this is the one that is most likely to argue uh, looks like a person can lose their salvation. The chapter 6 one, which we will get to in months. But just showing the assurance part. Right after the big passage that people say, this looks like you can lose it. The author writes, and we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end. Wait, what? The author is praying for and desiring that we can have the full assurance So he doesn't go, listen, you'll never have the full assurance because you just don't know. You you just don't know. His desire is that we would have the full assurance. Hebrews 10, he says, but we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. The author says this about himself and about his audience. We are the ones who will persevere. We will We are not of those who shrink back. Some will, but we are not, audience, 
That is intense. The author believes that we can have full assurance that our faith will endure to the end, preserved. To put it another way, perseverance is an inevitable fruit of saving faith. In fact, it is the conclusive proof of a regenerate heart. This is one of the reasons that we encourage the reading of dead authors. Because you can have a kind of confidence about the life of a person who's already gone. They have finished the race well. They didn't write a bunch of helpful books and preach a bunch of helpful sermons only to later apostatize and turn from the faith to make you go, whoa, is any of their work then trustworthy? It's helpful to read those that we can see the full length of their life, as much as we can in our human observations, imperfectly, of course. This is, just not, this is not just here in Hebrews. We don't just go, oh, only Hebrews is the place we see this assurance alongside warning or, or assurance of certainty at the same time that we see an encouragement to persevere. Look at this in Philippians 2, 12 through 13. This is Paul writing. He says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Work it out. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So do you work or does God work? Yep. Now, some of you might, might notice since, that someone could answer this or challenge us. Does this mean that it is, it is my work plus God's work equals perseverance? Is that what that means? My work plus God's work equals perseverance. So it's like a relay race. God does his part, we get the baton, we do our part, we make it to the finish line. Is that the idea in mind? No, this text doesn't even allow for that. That's what we call, we call that synergism. We both do our own part. We do our parts and we get to the end together. But the Bible teaches what we would call monergism, that God is over, under, and in, and through, and behind all of even what we genuinely do. This text makes that incredibly clear because in order for you to do any work, you have to decide and will to do that work. But it says here that it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So it is God that produces the will needed to work. This is significant. This is not the relay race. This is more like you're the jockey on the horse and the horse takes you through the finish line. Have you ever been confronted with the temptation to abandon your faith? Think about that for a moment. Have you ever been confronted with the temptation to abandon your faith? I'll give you an example of maybe uh, one way that I, I had this happen. Shortly after moving to Utah, uh, we were visited by a whole bunch of LDS missionaries, um, and one pair came to our table, and uh, we just spent a long time talking together. At one point, one of the young missionaries just straight up asked, he says, so how did you become a Christian? And I just shared the whole, my old testimony. She, Laura shared hers. We were just you know, weeping all over our table kind of thing. You know, just love sharing the gospel, how God changed our hearts and our commitment to that that led us to move to Utah and to plant a church and we're, we're ready to die for Jesus. We, we don't want anything but him and we're so grateful that God did this amazing work in us and we're saved and they, all, they both sat there nodded along and then one of them went, so I would challenge you right now to be baptized into the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And I was like, wait, did, did you not hear what I just said? He was, yeah, I, I hear that, but I, I think you should leave that and come do this. 
Now, question, you don't know this because you you're not me and you weren't there. But when offered with the actual temptation to abandon my faith for something else, why do you think that I did not deny my faith right then and there? I'll just, I'll just tell you. The answer, quite simply, is I didn't want to. I, I, was, I, was, I was actually shocked by the bravado of it. Right? What? Did you not? I just told you how I was saved and sent out here to try to help people and share the gospel. And I don't, want, I don't want to leave my God. My experience was certainly, I had no desire to leave the Christian faith to go on to something else. No desire at all. Do you know what it didn't feel like for me? It didn't feel like a, a temptation, a draw, a pull. And then God infused me with like some kind of faith serum that made like almost like, uh, like Popeye with, with his spinach when he downs a, a can of it and all of a sudden gets the power and strength to resist the temptation to go. I didn't want to go. What was the experience for you when you got saved? Was it, I hate God, 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 I don't want God, I don't want God, and then all of a sudden you feel this dragging across the line and you have to not hate him? Our experience is such that we have a change of desire. Why did you believe in Jesus? You wanted to. Why have you resisted sin? Because ultimately you saw that you wanted to resist it. Our experience, simply, this is what I mean by this, it feels much more natural, much more me, even mundane, than verses like this make it seem. If I were to articulate to you why it is I didn't fall into that sin yesterday, why is it that, that I didn't abandon my faith last week when there was potential for it? If I were to ask you that question, the answer probably wouldn't be because I felt this strange power come over me. I think it was God changing my will. You'd probably decide, I didn't want it. So I want you to follow, follow me with, with this for a second. I'm going to swing out for a moment. I'm going to come right back in and explain what I, what I mean by this. Perseverance. That doctrine. It's a nature of God issue. It is not primarily a salvation problem. One of soteriology. Like if you were searching for perseverance, you'd go to the salvation passages. You could. You could do that. It's not even just a human problem, an anthropology. You'd go to those passages. What does it say about humans, about us, what we should expect for ourselves? You could, you could do that. But it is primarily a theology problem. It's a question about the nature of God. Let me explain what I mean by this. How do you know that God is good? You could ask, how do you know there's God anything? Just. How do you know God is powerful? How do you know? Let me just ask you, how do you know God is good? You and I may rightly experience attributes of God all the time. Things like his, his goodness. Oh, God is good. We just thank him for being good. But we also know people and know our own experiences that by some perception might seem to say the opposite. You know this. People hear that God is all-powerful and that he is all-good, and then something terrible happens. And so what do you do with that? Well, many doubt that God is good or doubt that God is powerful.
So if experience shows that bad happened when God is good, and if he was powerful enough to stop it and didn't, at the very least we'd say that, at the very least we could say he could have stopped it and didn't, and free will is not a, not a pass on this one. That does not solve the problem. Why did that bad thing happen? God could have stopped it. Yes, he could. And he didn't. What do people conclude often? Well, then either God is not good or God is not powerful. And some just try to say there is no God at all. And you know this. Maybe you felt the tug in your own heart at seasons of your life and times where you've challenged us and wondered. How do you know then in the end that Jesus will defeat Satan? How do you know that? How do you know? You read the Bible, you get the book of Revelation, you don't have to wait to get there to see this, but you get there just to see the conclusion of all this thing, and Jesus will ultimately, definitively, and finally snuff out all evil once and for all. How do you know that that will happen? If experience makes it feel as though there's victory going to Satan all the time, how, how can you know that? The answer is that you could try to deduce it from what you know to be true about God, Okay, God is powerful, he's a, he's a good God, so if he's powerful and he's more powerful than Satan, he'll probably end up winning. You could do that. But ultimately, the reason that you and I can know that Jesus will win is because he declared that he would. That's how. We know that God is good primarily, not because of experience, but primarily because he said that he is good. Nahum 1.7, the Lord is good. Psalm 106.1, praise the Lord. Oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. James 1.17 even says every good and perfect gift is from above coming down from the Father of lights. Luke 18.19, Jesus even says no one is good but God alone. So not only is God good, he's the only one who is ultimately, in the final analysis, good. When God first tells his name to Moses... You might remember the story. Shows up in the burning bush. Moses is in the wilderness. All of his people are in Egypt, in slavery. He goes to this burning bush. He hears the voice of God and sees a bush burning. Not, not burning up, but flame. And God speaks to him. In Exodus 3, 13 and 14, this is what Moses said to God. If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? Moses is being sent by God to go back to his people, to declare to Pharaoh, let my people go. He says, well, if they ask, what God, what name, what should I tell them, burning bush? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. So I want you to think about this for a moment. God's name is not, I am whoever you want me to be. God's name is not, I am whatever you think I am. He does not say, I am whatever you experience me to be. And he does not say, I am whatever makes most sense to you. Quite simply, God says, I am who I am. 
irrespective of what you think or desire or hope for. I am who I am, God says. Why is God good? Because he is good. There is no external standard of goodness that exists outside of God to which he must conform. Oh, that's something. I'll be like that. Here's, I know I swung wide. Here, here's why I did this. The point. You and I can sit in a room and think about this for days, years, decades. Maybe we should. But unless we see it in the book, we've got nothing. You ought to test every claim that I make against the Bible here. Because God says what is true about himself God says what is true about us. God says what is true about our salvation, how we get saved and how we can stay saved. So we have to ask the question, what did God say about this? I've heard so many people argue, well, it can't be this or that because it doesn't make sense to me. It doesn't matter if it makes sense to you, first of all. What matters is what God says about this. Do we have clear examples of God doing this kind of thing in the Bible? Giving us assurance. That means where God gives assurance and then makes that assurance certain by a warning. Do we see that? And the answer is yes. I, wanna, I had a handful of these places in the notes that I was preparing to put this all together. A bunch hit the cutting room floor. If you're curious of more of them, see me after. I'll give you a, a list of them that I've been working through that I think are helpful to show the same thing. This one might be one of the most helpful, and it's not far from the book of Hebrews. It's in Acts chapter 27. The book of Acts chapter 27. You're welcome to turn there if you'd like. I'm going to read the whole account out loud, and I'm going to put the pertinent passages, as before, uh, up on the screen so you can see them. Acts 27. This is a period of time where the apostles are spreading the good news of Jesus Christ all over the Roman world. They're being persecuted for it, but the church is growing nonetheless. Paul, the apostle, went to Jerusalem and angered the Jews there because he basically said that God is sending him and the gospel to the Gentiles. They were so angry that it wasn't just to them, it was going to the Gentiles, that they were infuriated and they uh, had an uproar that caused him to be put in chains and he was bound by the Roman authorities. He's put in prison and he was stuck in prison for more than two years by the time we get to Acts chapter 27. He appeals to Caesar, the highest authority in the land. They have to take him from Jerusalem to Rome because he appealed to Caesar. That's the way the court system worked out. He had to go do that. So he gets on a ship with Julius, the commander of, a, of, the, of the Roman cohort, who's got him under guard. He gets on a ship with 275 other people. Luke is one of them who writes the book of Acts, present to see these things to hear these things, 276 total people on this boat, including Paul, they're heading towards Rome. I'm going to read an account of what happens when they're on this boat, starting in Acts 27, starting in verse 13. You can listen along to this. Now, when the south wind blew gently, supposing that they had obtained their purpose, they weighed anchor and sailed along Crete, close to the shore. But soon, a tempestuous wind called the Northeaster struck down from the land. And when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along, running under the lee of a small island called Kaura. We managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boat. After hoisting it up, they used supports to undergird the ship. Then fearing that they would run aground on the Sirtis, they lowered the gear. And thus they were driven along. Since we were violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo. 
And on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small tempest lay on us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. It's pretty intense wording, right? It reads a little bit like the beginning of a Robinson Crusoe story retelling, doesn't it? They're in a shipwreck situation. They can't control the ship. They get to a point where they're just doing everything they can to survive. They throw everything out. They've lost all hope. Verse 21 says, Since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, Men, you should have listened to me and not have set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. So Paul contributes a very helpful, I told you so. Thank you, Paul. But he then follows up with this, and I'll put this on the screen, because he goes from that little not-so-helpful statement to this very helpful statement. He says this, Yet now I urge you to take heart. For there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. So what's the promise he tells them? No one will die. No one will die. And then he goes on. How does he know this? Is this his opinion? For this very night there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. That's worthy of a sermon. Isn't that cool? An angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, do not be afraid. Paul, you must stand before Caesar, and behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So why is Paul encouraging these guys, none of you are going to die? Because God said, through this angel, supernaturally, you will not die, nor will anyone else with you. What would happen, for those of you who know Bible teaching on these things, what would happen if this ended up to not be true? If one or two or three men died, of the 276, maybe three of them died, Paul would be a false prophet. That angel would be eternally accursed for being not sent of God. All of the rest of the book of Acts is gone. You get this? Do you know how many books of the Bible Paul had a hand in writing? Either writing specifically or had a hand in writing? you know how much of the New Testament could not be trusted if Paul proved himself to be a false prophet? Because the New New and Old Testament both tell us If someone proclaims something that God has spoken in a dream or revelation and it doesn't come to pass, they're a false prophet. It doesn't matter what they say. Don't believe them. Paul prophesies. There will be no loss of life. What can we be utterly certain will happen? No one will die. Hope that horse is dead. I'm going to read the next portion here. Verse 25. So take heart, men. This is Paul still talking. Take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. But we must run aground on some island. When the 14th night had come, as we were being driven across the Adriatic Sea, about midnight, the sailors suspected that they were nearing land. So they took a sounding and found 20 fathoms. A little further on, they took a sounding again and found 15 fathoms. And fearing we might run on the rocks, they let down four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship, this is where it gets another important point. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship and had lowered the ship's boat into the sea under pretense of laying out anchors from the bow, Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, look what he says, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Did Paul not promise a promise from the Lord, an angel himself, that no one would die? Then why doesn't Paul just say, do what you want? God promised it. You're good. He's got you. 
Why? Because Paul intended for this warning to be the means by which the promise of the preservation of life to take place. That's how God would preserve their lives. If you get out, you're going to die out there. It's nighttime here now. You're not going to survive if you get out. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it go. By the time we get down to verse 44, daylight had come. It was time now for them to get off the boat and to make it to shore, all to safety, and the rest on planks or in pieces of the ship. And so it was that all were brought safely to land. Do you see this? These are all over the Bible where God promises certainly you will not die. And then warns, don't do that or you will die. Do you see that? Did you see that in this story right here? We don't have to go into Hebrew in the Old Testament. We don't have to try to find new language, a new storytelling. We go right to a descriptive, clear passage of what happened, a historical retelling of a moment in Paul and Luke's life. God ordains not just the ends, but the means. You cannot say that if God gives certain assurance, he cannot also give genuine warnings. Uh, yeah, he does. All the time. He can do that, and he does do that. He gives certain assurance of salvation and warnings to not leave the faith. Both. He gives both. The question we might ask is, what about assurance? Does this not... Does this not rob us of assurance? If endurance to the end is the final proof of a person's salvation, can we ever really trust that we or others are genuine believers? Can we ever really trust that? Yes. Jesus does not say you can never really know if someone's a false teacher. He goes, you can recognize them by their fruits. You can know. Paul doesn't go, there's no way to know if someone's a genuine believer. He gives lists and qualifications to test people to know if they're qualified to be in roles of leadership. We've already seen the author of Hebrews tells us that we can certainly have assurance, a certain assurance to the final day. No, no, this does not have to be assurance robbing for us. So then, so then how are we to think about those who make professions of faith but later leave the faith? How are we to think about those who, and the word is apostatize, those who, those, who, those who start, look faithful, and they leave? What are we to think about that? Well, the Bible deals with this explicitly, the exact question in 1 John 2, 18-19. John writes, children, it is the last hour. This is the last age of, the, of Christian life. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. So he's saying, listen, listen. You're going to experience persecution, those who are against Christ, antichrist. They're all over the place. They're already amongst us. They're going to be with us all the way up until the end. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. This is a sign that we know we're in that final age of history. But then he gives them this encouragement. They, those antichrists, they went out from us. They were with us. They gathered with us in like church gatherings and worshiped and sang songs and listened to sermons and went to Bible studies. They went out from us, 
but they were not of us. And this is the important phrase here. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. Do you see that? So what do we do? What, would you th- what should you think of me? If next week I took this pulpit and preached utter heresy of the kind that is faith-damning, if preaching that you do, should not worship Jesus, that you do not need to believe to be saved, that God cannot be trusted, false things, clearly, unshakably false things, what can you know? And if I were to walk out of here and die right after, I was not of you. And by God's grace, that was made plain. Do you, know, do you see that? Hebrews does not speak to the person who's left like this. Hebrews warns us to not have that happen to us. John does speak to the person who has left the church. What do we think about them? They're not of us. They never were. They never were. In fact, Jesus says the same kind of thing in Matthew 7 when he spoke about those who not only made professions of faith, called him Lord, Lord, did works. But with those who will not get into heaven, he said this about them. I'll show you, Matthew 7. He says, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Does Jesus say, ah, you used to be one of mine, and then you jumped out of my hands. You used to be under the redeeming love of God, but you said you don't want to be loved, and so you don't have the redeeming love of God anymore. No. He says, I, I never knew you. You were never one of mine. This is heavy stuff. This is heavy-hearted stuff. I preach on this for two reasons. Number one, I think it's helpful for you. Number two, it's in the text. It's right here. I've got to preach it. So we're going to end on a note of encouragement. What's the antidote to this? How can we, how can we avoid the falling away? If that could be true of those who profess Faith in Christ. Titus chapter 1, Paul says, there are many who profess to love Jesus, but they don't. You can see it. Just saying it doesn't mean anything. I'm going to show you this encouragement from our text today in the next verse, verse 13. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Exhort. That word means to urge, encourage, plead appeal to, implore, comfort. In fact, in Hebrews, multiples of those exact words are used of the same Greek word later. That's what exhort means. This is the call to action. This, so what do we do? What do we do? We got this letter. It's telling us to not be like the Israelites in the wilderness. That was what was said previously in verses 7 through 12. He's telling us to do what in order to avoid falling away? Exhort one another every day as long as it is called today. Encourage one another. And the one another, this is, you need this. You need to receive this from others and you need to do this for others. If you are a believer, what do you need? You need to be an exhorter and you need to be exhorted. You need to be an encourager and you need to be encouraged. You need to appeal 
to your brother or sister in faith to follow God. And you need people to appeal to you. And how often should we do this? You see it right here. Every day, as long as it is called today. That's a reference back to the psalm. He's exciting. He's going to bring this up again in the next several uh, paragraphs. But as long as it is called today. So as long as we're still here, we're on earth together. We're not yet in glory. We have not yet entered that full, ultimate, final, complete rest of God. We're here now. As long as we're here in this era, exhort one another every day. Encourage one another every day. You, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. That you don't fall away. It, an evil, unbelieving heart, it says in the verse pre- previous. Evil, unbelieving heart leads you to fall away from living God. One of my favorite pastors says, uh, John Piper, he says, sanctification is a community project. Have you ever thought about this? You need help believing. I'm like super American. I'm like the kind of, I like... Grew up red, white, and blue. We used to celebrate the Marine Corps birthday in my home. You guys don't even know when that is, probably. We, we used to, I mean, I'll show you a picture sometime of us wearing literally American flag shirts as a family down the street. I think it's illegal, for the record. I don't think you're supposed to wear the flag, but we did. Um, we were raised that way. And, I, and Americans are liberty-loving, freedom-loving, self-reliant peoples. And there are a lot of really good values in there. But one of the negative ways that impacts us is we can say, I got this, I got this, I got this. No, I, I believe, I believe. Don't worry about me. Don't worry about me. Go on without me. You know, the, you know the movie scene? 200 movies. Let me die here. Go without me kind of thing. No, don't. Listen, don't go without me. And we won't go without you. You need help believing. I need help believing. Sin is so deceitful. We need help to not let that hardening effect tie us and bind us up. Proverbs 5.22, the iniquities of the wicked ensnare him and he is held fast in the cords of his sin. The more we sin, the more tightly we are bound into our sins. Like a noose that constricts, the more the victim writhes. We need one another. God has ordained that the daily exhorting will be the means that he uses to preserve you and your fellow saints. Take care, brothers. That's that's literally the author giving an example of the exhortation. That's said right here. Take care, brothers and sisters in Christ. I was a God-loving, Bible-trusting believer for years before I believed the doctrines that I was talking about today. We are very patient with those who are trying to figure this out. And why? Because it says exhort everyone, other believers, every day. It's going to take the rest of your life and my life to work through issues of belief and sin and perseverance. If this is a doctrine you struggle with, you need to know, you're talking about this at the elders meeting this last week, your pastors love you, We we, we are... aching to just be a part of exhorting you every day and being exhorted every day, as long as it takes, because it's still today. Even if it takes years. And I'll close with this promise from Psalm 37, 28. For the Lord loves justice. He will not forsake his saints. 
They are preserved forever. Let's pray. Father, I am well aware that a sermon of this kind of topic, covering these kinds of things, uh, is very heavy-hearted for many of us when, A, we may have observed others in our lives who have left the faith, or maybe are in a season where they are appearing to abandon the faith entirely, and we're, we're wondering, were they ever really saved, or, or is this a person who's just in a, in a hard season that needs help to return back in faithfulness? Father, maybe, maybe we struggle ourselves. Maybe right now, people who are hearing this are wondering, Lord, Lord, do I really believe in you? Lord, maybe, maybe there are genuine believers who need to both hear the real warning and the encouragement of assurance. And Father, I'm going to have to just trust your spirit to emphasize and highlight whatever is most needed by that child of God today. Um, for those who need the gentle encouragement, you, you are a real brother and sister. You, he will preserve you, Christian brother, Christian sister. But that's, that's what they'll hear. But for Lord, for, for those who need a special emphasis of that exhortation, take care, watch out, that they would get that. Lord, only you can do this. You are the God who is who you say that you are. So Lord, show yourself in that way to us. Help us. Father, I pray that this church would be encouraged in this, that we would be the kind of church that does not hold judgment over one another, but is quick and eager to be generous and gentle and helpful and expect that we will need exhorting and others will need exhorting to expect that daily we're going to observe imperfections in ourselves and in others. And that, Lord, that when we see seasons of victory, that we ought not become prideful. But we should know that, Lord, you, you have worked, that you have produced the will and the work in us to keep us in your everlasting love. Father, we thank you so much for these things. Uh, challenge us with your word. Teach us to submit daily to it. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.